I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the third chapter of Colossians. And this, this is going to be another one of those almost impossible assignments. Uh, but rather than force-fitting everything, we'll go as far as we can go and see where we end up. In, in reading Paul's New Testament letters... I haven't really sat down and checked this out to see if all 13 are this way, but many of the letters of Paul follow a kind of a set pattern where he has the introduction greetings, and then he will teach doctrine and theology, what we need to believe and think about the Christian life. For, and then the next section is practical application of it, and then there will be the close at the end. Well, Colossians fits that pattern. Chapters 1 and 2 are basically doctrine and theology. And then in chapters 3 and 4, you have practical application uh, of the truths that you've uh, learned. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. And much of chapter 3 deals with how a follower of Christ needs to dress so that they can dress for spiritual success. And so what we're going to see in this passage of Scripture is Paul's teachings on the clothing we need to remove from our lives because it's clothing where you dress for failure, spiritual failure, and then you have the clothing that you should put on so that you can see, succeed spiritually. Now, the first point I want to make this morning from verses 1 through 4, as followers of Christ, our new life in Christ mandates that we dress differently. It's not an option. If you're a believer, the expectation of what we're going to discuss today is there. There's no wiggle room out of it. So let's read verses 1 through 4, and then I'll make some comments. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Before Paul describes the close that we need to take off and put on as a result of our salvation. He first gives them an important exhortation, phrased differently in two different verses, but basically meaning the same thing. In verse 1, he says, keep seeking the things above. Verse 2, set your mind on the things above. Now, the, the verb keep seeking is a present tense, and, um, present tense imperative verb in the Greek. And that carries the idea, it's a command that has present and ongoing implications. It needs to be continuous actions. So he's saying continue always to seek things that are above. Why is that? Well, think about what people are, are seeking. People are seeking peace and joy and contentment, meaning, purpose, identity, wisdom, guidance, just to name a few. And these are all found 
in things above where the Lord is. Now, I want to give you a rule of thumb about seeking. You will never find something if you continue looking for it where it ain't. Now, my 12th grade English teacher, Mary Wiles, just rolled over in her grave. But I figured that would help you remember it. Remember, you're never going to find something if you keep looking for it where it isn't. Okay? So if we start looking for purpose and identity and wisdom and meaning to life here, we're never going to find it. It's going to be... So we need to keep seeking on things that are above. Number, verse 2 says, set your mind. If you have a King James Version, it says, set your affection on things that are above. The word set carries the idea of being intensely focused on something. So set your mind means that we lock in mentally to the things of heaven by using our mental processes of perception and thinking and reasoning and decision-making and all the things we do with our minds to focus on the things that have not things on earth. John MacArthur says, To seek things that are above, set our minds on them, means we are preoccupied with them. He adds, I quote, To be preoccupied with heaven is to be preoccupied with the one who reigns there and with his purposes, plans, provisions, and power. It's to view the things, people, and events of this world through his eyes and with an eternal perspective. Now, Paul goes on in these first four verses to give three points of rationale as to why we should do that, why we should set our mind and on things of heaven and keep on seeking the things of heaven. In verse 1 he says, it's because we have been raised with Christ. He says, in my translation, if then you have been raised with Christ. Seeing that word if suggests that there's a question as to whether or not the reader would have. But actually this can be translated since. It's not a question of if, it's a it's a statement of certainty. It's just a unique way of phrasing it. So he says, since you've been raised up with Christ. And that word raised up literally means co-resurrected. That's a beautiful thought. That, that at the moment of our salvation, it's as if we have died and gone into the tomb with Jesus and then when that stone was rolled away, and in that brightness he came out, that we would be with him. <clears throat> so he's speaking here of the spiritual resurrection we experience at salvation. So he says, <clears throat> as a result of having been co-resurrected with Christ at the moment of our salvation, therefore keep seeking things in heaven. In verse 3, we see the second reason we should do that is because we have died <clears throat> and our lives are hidden with Christ and God. Paul reminds them that true salvation results from spiritual suicide. Where we intentionally put to death our old sin nature and the sin in our life and any hope of saving ourselves. 
So it's a voluntary renunciation of any capacity to save ourselves, and it's a voluntary renunciation of any thought that sin is okay at any point for a believer. Have you ever been riding down the road and suddenly somebody in the car exclaimed, boy, something died? <laughs> well, the fact that we have died to our old sin life ought to be that obvious to others by the way we live. Just don't have any odor to it. <laughs> okay, number three. The third reason we should set our mind on things above is because one day we'll be revealed with Christ in glory. As I thought about that, that we should so live in this life so that we'll be ready for when Christ comes back to get us uh, and then take us on to be with him in heaven. I thought of uh, a song from many years ago from one of the early contemporary Christian singers, Wayne Watson. The, the chorus of the song went like this. One day Jesus will call my name. As the days go by, I hope I don't stay the same. I want to get so close to him so it's no big change on that day when Jesus calls my name. You know, we can either get to heaven by the skin of our teeth and leave Jesus with a lot of work to do, or we could do some of the work for him before we get there. You know, as I close out these verses 1 through 4, I'm reminded when it's talking about be heavenly minded and focused and seeking. Somebody said in my presence one time, said, don't be so heavenly minded, you're of no earthly good. If you read this passage of scripture, chapter three, you'll find out you cannot help but be good if you're heavenly minded. Good for people here. Okay, number two point, if you like points, for the follower of Jesus, there is some clothing that is inappropriate for the believer to have on or to have hanging in his or her closet. We see that in verses 5 through 11. So let's just work through them. He says, therefore, and when you see a therefore, immediately stop and say, what is it there for? It's there to point backwards so that it can then point forwards. And the backwards is to verses 1 through 4. The forwards is to what he's going to say. So the backwards is, as a result of continually seeking things above, as a result of being heavenly minded, as a result of having died to our old nature, as a result of having been resurrected from spiritual death through Christ, as a result of one day being revealed with Christ in glory, there's, we should do something very significant. And he says, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Now, so, so what he's saying here is that we intentionally and voluntarily put our spiritual lives, the death, the members of our body, that would participate in sin, in sin. Now, earlier he said that we have died to our sin nature. Now he's saying, continually consider the members of your body as dead. How can something that has died 
once, die a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth time. Let me phrase it like this. Our first death to self and sin is essential to secure our salvation. Our repeated deaths to self and sin are essential to secure our sanctification. Our first death to sin establishes our position in Christ, which is saved, righteous, freed from the penalty of sin. Our second and then repeated deaths to self establish our performance as a believer in Christ, sanctified and free from the power of sin. I urge you to read Galatians 2.20 when you have a moment. We don't have time to go there, but that's exactly what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ, therefore uh, I don't continue to live. So, So Paul says, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Just say that is no longer valid in my life. And then he lists a number of them. So let's quickly work down the list. First he lists, in my translation, it's immorality. Our pastor went through this a couple of weeks ago when he was on the commandment, don't commit adultery. This comes from the Greek word pornea, and that is where we get our word pornography from. So it gives you an idea of what it's talking about. But specifically, he's saying consider as dead and thus not allowable any sexual relationship that occurs outside the marriage relationship of a male husband and a female wife. Now, I have to say that like that in our culture today. Okay? So that means that there, this eliminates any premarital sexual relations, any during marriage sexual relations, which would be adultery, and I would add post-marriage sexual relations of a widow, widower, or divorced person. So just because you've been to the rodeo, that doesn't mean that you can continue to ride the bulls after it's over with. That was not from the Holy Spirit. The next is impurity. Uh, that's moral uncleanness, impure living, indecency, uh, lustful impurity connected with loose living. Passion can also be translated lust, and I call lust a natural desire on steroids, <laughs> meaning that you, you are overwhelmed and consumed by something that is a natural desire that gave you and want to use it in a way that's contrary to his will. Evil desire is base. Evil desires, any desire that's contrary to the will of God. Greed, which he has commentary on, he says, greed which amounts to idolatry. <clears throat> Literally, it's the desire to have more. Greediness. And so what it's doing is a person who replaces contentment, godly contentment, with what God has provided and continued, will provide, and replaces it with a desire to have something else. And it's 
can move into covetousness, which is the desire to have, not only to have something, but to have a particular person's something so that they cannot have it either. Now, in verse 6 and 7, he continues to give commentary. He says, For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. Sin, such sins as what has will invite the wrath of God on you individually and collectively on people and ultimately will result in judgment. And then he says, And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. What Paul is saying here is that where we live, whether it's in Christ or it's in sin, will determine how we walk. It's just a basic principle of living. Now, in verses 8 through 9, he, he returns to a list of things that we should take off. He says, but now you also put them aside. Now, Understand, he would not at, compel us to do that if it's not possible for us to do that. And that is our part in the process. You see, God can provide motivation, wisdom, and know-how, how to put the ne negative attitudes and actions aside, but we've got to do the lifting to put them aside. We can't do God's part, as a friend of mine in Landrum used to say, and he won't do our part. So we need to understand what's going on. So he says, put off anger. Now, anger in and of itself is not a sin. If, you, if you'll read, uh, I think it's chapter 4, uh, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, it says, don't sin with your anger. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. But this anger is settled and abiding anger, which is coupled with a desire to take revenge. Non-sinful anger, in my words, is when a person gets angry and may even show it, but has reconciliation and not revenge on their mind in spite of being angry. Now, then we come to a different word, a uh, similar word, wrath. This word in Greek is an outburst of angry emotion that blazes up quickly and subsides. It may or may not evolve into a desire for revenge. If it does, then that goes to the other anger. <clears throat> now, let's just assume you get cut off by another driver in traffic. And you yelled towards the car, the other person, you idiot. But then you remember you have your In God We Trust tag on the back of your car. <laughs> so you choose not to go around the person and slow down and make them tailgate you or something else. Well, you experience this kind of wrath because you got over it. But have you ever heard anybody say, you know, I'm not a person that hangs on to things. If I get mad, I let it out, and then I get over it. Well, the question's not, do you get over it, but does the person you exploded on get over it? So we need to remember that. 
Then he goes to the word malice, ill will or spite. Malice toward one another means I am sad when they succeed and happy when they fail or have difficulties. Now that, this means that many Clemson fans and many Carolina fans are guilty of malice. Just saying. I'm the Clemson, I confess, right here in front of me. Okay. Slander. Slander can also be translated blasphemy. Now, when we think blasphemy, we think blaspheming God. And, of course, that is the most serious blasphemy, especially the Holy Spirit. But this is blaspheming other people. Slander is the means by which I injure someone else's reputation or life when I soil or ruin them by means of sharing lies, misinformation, or half-truths about them. So, uh, a good question to ask is, how safe are other people's reputations with me? Abusive speech can also be translated filthy language. This involves abusing or dragging down another person with profanity, off-color humor, obscene language. Remember Jesus' teachings that it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles a man. And a good way to look at that is my mouth is the loudspeaker of my heart. And so to... To say something, to, to slander someone and say, oh, I'm not a slanderer, your mouth has betrayed you because your mouth has revealed your true heart. Don't lie to one another. I, I love the series of Geico commercials where they would ask a question. Uh, they would say, with Geico, you can you know, save 15% or more within 15 minutes. And then they would say uh, something like, they would ask a question, well, the one I liked the best is had Abraham Lincoln. It said, does Abraham Lincoln ever lie? Well, then they switched to a, a, a scene where Abraham Lincoln is standing in the back of the room and Mary Todd, who is quite squatty in this version, is standing in front of the mirror, looking at herself, and then she looks at Abe and said, does this dress make me look fat? <laughs> and the look on Abraham Lincoln's face is, I'm, I can't tell a lie. But how do I get out of this mess that she's put me in? And then he says, maybe just a little bit. <laughs> well, God hates lies, why? One, it directly contradicts the essence of who he is. Remember, Jesus is the truth. Number two, he hates it because it enslaves people. If you never tell a lie, you don't have to remember what you said. But if you tell a lie, you've got to remember it for the rest of your life or you'll get caught at some point. But he also hates it for a practical reason. Besides love, honesty is the foundation of all trust. And trust is essential for strong personal relationships. Now, verse 9, and the second half, 
gives uh, additional reasons why we should take off the old clothes, put on the new. It says, since you laid aside the old self which is, with its evil practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Now, in, in these verses, what, what he's talking about is that the reason that you do, you have laid aside the old nature. So why in the world are you living out of your old nature? The verbs put off and put on denote once and for all action. They're words that denote salvation, which indicates what happens spiritually and happens to us when the Colossians first accept Christ. The verb form for who is being renewed is a present tense participle, which means it's happening now, but it keeps on going. And so the put off and the put on was a one-time event, but it has to continue. It's that sanctification process I was talking about earlier. Let me give you an analogy for marriage. When a husband and wife stand in front of a minister or justice of the peace, whoever, and they uh, exchange their vows, maybe even their rings, by those two done, getting it over with events, they are married. But it's what happens on a daily basis that creates a marriage, a quality marriage. And so the one and done spiritually of salvation is we have laid aside the old self with its evil practices. But the con constant renewing is what gives us the sanctified life that God seeks for us. Now in verse 11, it's almost like an aside. In fact, in my... Um, translation there's a long dash before it but in verse 11 it's important because Paul reminds us that God so loved the whole world that he sent his son to the whole world so that whoever in the whole world believes in his death burial and resurrection will be saved now he does this by saying this renewal of the new self he says in verse 11, there's no distinction between Greek and Jew, between uncircumcised and circumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all in and all. In other words, whether by race, people group, gender, social standing, or whatever we choose to distinguish people from, the gospel is all for all people, and all people can be saved. Now, I want to tell you, as we move in 12.15, where he gives the positive clothing to put on, I want to tell you a story of something that happened to me one time, but I want you to listen carefully, because if you tell this story wrong, you're going to get me fired. <laughs> when I was pastor at First Baptist Church of Landrum, one of the joys we had of, uh, was eating at the Junction restaurant in Gownsville. Now, I don't know how it is now, but it was a blow-and-going country cooking place when we were growing up, especially breakfast. Well, one day I went out by myself to get some lunch, and I was sitting in, in the main dining area, and a church family from, from our church came in. 
And I nodded to him, waited to him, and had my meal. And when I was getting ready to leave, I went back to where they were sitting in another dining area, talked with them. And later, uh, with, with the family group was the stepmother and father of the husband. Uh, but they weren't members of our church, but they would visit from time to time, and especially funerals. And so Marion, the, the wife, told me later, said, when you walked away from the table, my stepmother said, you know, he looks a lot different with clothes on. <laughs> she said, we all looked at her and stunned. And then she realized what she said, how it sounded. She said, I mean, he looks different with regular clothes on. I've only seen him in a suit. Well, I tell you that story to reinforce this important truth that he's going to make in 12 through 15. When we accept Christ, the clothing change that results ought to be such that it makes a great difference in the way we look to others. Okay? Verse 12. So, as the chosen of God, as holy people, as beloved people, there is an expectation of our lives. He says, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on the heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and then he goes on, and we'll get to those in a minute. Heart of compassion. Tender mercies is another translation. Literally, it is bowels of compassion. Now, what we, now, what we understand about the Greeks is that they located their deepest emotions in the bowels. So my plan one day is to look at Lynn and say, Lynn, I love you with every inch of my colon. <laughs> I don't... A heart of compassion enables us not only to crawl up inside the experience of someone who's suffering, but it will lead us to act on their behalf as well. Kindness, you understand the word. Gentle helpfulness, helpful consideration, gracious deeds on behalf of somebody, whether they deserve it or need it or not. Humility, Christianity, Jesus and Christianity rescued this word. Because the Greeks frowned strongly on humility, seeing it as a position of weakness. But Jesus led his followers to elevate it, standing by thinking of others first, thinking of others more highly than we do of ourselves, and being submissive rather than high-minded, proud, or haughty. Now, they did the same thing. Jesus and Christians have done the same thing with the next word. The word meekness. Now, when you think of the word meek, at least when I do, I think of a weak-kneed, wimpish person who the way they go about life is almost like they're apologetic that they're taking oxygen out of the air to breathe. Now, is that 
what you think about meek, a meek little person? It is a word of great strength. What the word means is power under control, being strongly tender. This word in the Greek language was used to speak of soothing wind, a healing medicine, a colt that has been broken. So now it has all the strength it's ever had, but it can be controlled and become useful to a person. Such a beautiful word. He goes on, patience. This could be long-suffering, being long-tempered versus short-tempered. It's the ability to put up with difficult people or circumstances without blowing your top or provoking a clash with somebody or seeking retaliation. It's the ability to suffer or endure a wrong suffered, even if falsely accused. It's the ability to trust God to vindicate you rather than having to get your own vengeance. And then he moves on to 13. He says, bearing with one another. This is the ability to bear with or refrain from attacking someone or someone when a shortcoming or weakness in them is exposed. I got to thinking about that. What is one of the best motivations for forbearance or bearing with other people? Well, it's coming to the point where you realize and accept the fact that you might quite possibly somebody else's pain in the neck. <laughs> and if I can be somebody's pain in the neck, then why am I bothered when somebody's a pain in the neck to me? Okay? Forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. We know what forgiveness is. It's granting pardon. It's rescuing. It's showing favor. Paul is emphasizing here that God's graciousness in pardoning our offenses against him should be the basis for our graciousness and forgiving the offenses of someone else toward us. He says in verse 14, beyond all things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Why do we wear belts? To keep your pants up, number one. But does a belt not tie an outfit together? What Paul is saying is that love is the highest Christian virtue that ties all of these other virtues together and produces a unity in the body of Christ, which is whole and complete. It's not our sameness as believers which promotes unity in the body. It's our ability to love one another in spite of our differences that makes the body special. Now, in verses 15 through 17, just real quickly, uh, number one, the peace of God ruling in our hearts. Peace means to be bound, joined, and woven together. That word rule was a word used in the Greek language of, of a, a person who presided at Greek games and distributed prizes. Said it could be equivalent to an umpire in one of our uh, athletic activities. 
So to experience peace in our hearts and thus to promote peace within the body of Christ, our hearts need to be bound, joined, and woven together in oneness and contentment because of or in spite of our circumstances. It's that settled spirit that comes to us because God's spirit of peace is ruling in our hearts. He adds, and to do that, in a spirit of thanksgiving. Obviously, to be thankful, you must first have the aroma of humility about you, and that means that you realize that you are not self-made. But then also a spirit of dependence, which says that you realize you are not self-sustained. We're dependent upon God and others to make it in this life. And then he says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. A heart saturated by the word of God uh, is what he's talking about here. So that we can teach one another wisdom and to admonish and correct one another when we stray. And then he wraps that section up with the life lived. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. This describes a life lived in the power and authority of Jesus. Now, Paul has done all of this, and it's like he, he's itching to give it practical application. And that's what he does in verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. Now, we don't have time to, to go into that, but I, I want to give you an example of something and then I want you to do your own work at home with, with that. In, in 18 to 21, he identifies two areas where eliminating all these negative attributes and actions will help and putting into place all the positive things that he's talked about, how it will help. Number one, in the family. Number two, at work. And so even though he talks about masters and slaves, you may have felt that way about one of your employers at one time, but masters and slaves can be manager and person working for you or whatever. But what, what I want to do is show you an example of what I'm talking about. In verse 21, Paul in practical application says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. Now, let me give you a scenario. Let's suppose that your, one of your children does something that's simply carelessness from immaturity and growing up rather than rebellion and disrespect. There's a world of difference in how those two should be disciplined. Let's suppose... What would it do to the child's spirit if the father or mother or both responded not with gentleness, patience, and forbearance, but with anger, wrath, and or abusive speech? Can you imagine how crushed the spirit of that child would be? So what I would like encourage you to do is to go back up to verse 18 and work down through those verses and, and apply that same kind of thought process to it so that the Holy Spirit can bring about application. 
Let me close with another story. When I was a little boy, well, I've always been little, but when I was a boy, <laughs> I grew up on Grove Road about three blocks from Memorial Hospital, and we had a lot of trees around us, and in my, our backyard where we played, we had killed what grass there was, and so it was nothing but dirt behind our house where I played a lot. And one day while I was playing, I realized I was getting dirty, I had this really fantastic thought. Put as much dirt on you from head to toe as you can, and then go in and take a bath and see how dirty the bath water can get. <laughs> so I did that. Uh, I can't recall the look on my mama's face, but I think I heard her jaw hit the, hit the floor. So I went in there, and I took a bath. Clean, I got clean. I mean, that water was filthy, filthy brown. Well, now I got tired of that. I let the water out, ran in clean water, took a bath, got good and clean, and I got out and I reached down, got those dirty clothes, and put them back on. <laughs> Went back outside to play. No, I didn't. Even as a little boy, I knew you don't take off dirty clothes, get clean, and then put the dirty clothes back on. So the question I ask on behalf of the passage today, then why in the world, after we have put off the old self, being cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, why in the world do we keep putting back on our dirty clothes? Let's pray. Father, thank you for being here today. Thank you for all these people. Bless us and give us the courage to live out what we've learned today. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.